I want to say uh, happy Father's Day to everybody. Um, mine started at 5.30 with my six-year-old coming in uh, to give me a card. And then around 7, there was a bowl of mini-wheats that he poured for me and, and served at the table. So it started off pretty good so far. And I hope yours is going well as, as well. Now, when I was 11, uh, me and my brother John, who was nine at the time, and some friends, we went to a pond that was close to our neighborhood um, and and we were, it, was, it was late winter, and we were thinking of maybe playing hockey on it. Now, it was a warm day, and so I, I remember we got there. I looked at the ice, and I, I'm thinking, that kind of looks a bit thin. It might actually crack if we go out on it. Now, my brother John, he was the type of guy that just dove right in, and, and as he's about to go out on the ice, I said to him, I don't think you should do that. Like, the ice looks thin. It doesn't look safe. Now, if you know John, especially when he was younger, or if you've just had a younger brother at all, you know they're not going to listen to their older siblings. Like, I'm not listening, and and they just go ahead and do it. And so John goes out onto the pond, um, onto the ice, and he's carrying a hockey stick with him. Now, as he steps out, he gets about two feet out into the pond, and it, it starts to crack. Now, he doesn't go through, but as he's going back, he slips. And so he, he swings that hockey stick um, behind him, and his wise older brother who told him he probably shouldn't do that happened to be standing right behind him. And so that hockey stick comes back, and it hits me right there. Now, if you've ever been hit in the head, you know your first reaction is this. You, you bring your hand up, and then what do you do? You pull it down to see if there's blood. And I was pretty sure there's going to be a bit of blood because I got hit really hard. And so I look... And, and my hand is just covered in it, and I can feel the blood coming down my face. And I, I'm going, like, this is not one of those things where you can just let it crust over and, and bleed out, and you'll be fine. It was one of those times where you're going, I need mom. Like, we need, we need mom for this one. And so I'm pretty sure I sp- set a, like, a speed record getting home that day to see mom. And uh, my brother's chasing me the entire time, going, like, please don't tell mom. Please don't tell mom. And I'm like, I think she's going to ask about this. Now... John walked away from that incident without a scratch. Um, his ego might have been a bit bruised because I was right and he was wrong. But I got a trip to the ER, four stitches, a black eye, a scar, and a story. But sometimes you can be minding your own business when, when the carelessness, the foolishness, um, the irresponsibility of another person, it has an impact on you. Sometimes you pay the consequences for the um, actions of other people. And we see this when a leader will make a mistake. They can, they can make a poor decision. They can do something irresponsible, outright foolish, and the people under them pay the consequences. And so maybe they do make a bad, bad decision. Maybe they do um, mismanage money. Maybe they are um, not so uh, friendly in diplomatic relationships. And, and a leader's actions can affect a lot of people. We're going to see that in today's text. We're in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, if you have your Bible. But in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, we find that King David decides he's going to take a census of Israel. And we understand um, that this is a sinful action based off of the way that the leader of the army, Joab, responds. He says, you're going to bring God's judgment upon Israel. Now, David is king, and he just says, like, I'm the king. You do what I say. And so Joab goes, and he does the census Now, taking a census is not wrong in and of itself. I mean, God had commanded that censuses be taken previously. But verse 5 tells us one of the reasons 
that David might wanted the, wanted the census. It's to know how many warriors, how many soldiers he has in his kingdom. And so what most likely makes this sinful is David's motives for the census. Uh, Israel is an established kingdom. They're, they're kind of at the top of the world at this point. And so they, they're, they're Years of fighting wars are kind of past them at this point. And one possibility that makes this sinful is that David just wants to go, oh, look at the kingdom I have established, I have built as king, and take credit for it, take pride in it. And so it might be the sin of pride. The other possibility is due to the fact that David had recently dealt with some revolutions and uprisings. And so David might be going, well, if that happens again, I want to know what's at my disposal. What, what, what are the resources I have to deal with? with an emergency. And so this could be a sign that David is um, actually starting to trust in um, man and not in God. And up to this point, David had consistently trusted in God to provide, God to, to do what it took. He wasn't putting his confidence in man. And so the sin could be putting, again, his confidence in his own power, his own wisdom, and not God. Now the census is completed and God is angered by it. And so God sends the prophet Gad to David, and he does something that's kind of unusual. He gives three options for the possible punishment for David's sin in verse 12. And essentially, God is saying to David, you pick the penalty for your sin. And so he can have three years of famine, or he can have three months of military reverses at the hands of Israel's enemies, or he can have three days of the sword of the Lord, which would include an awful plague. Now, when you read this, you, you might go like, this kind of seems really extreme. God escalated things pretty quick because is it really that bad? But, but David is king. And as king, he represents the people and the people bear the consequences of David's behavior, whether good or bad. So David has a decision to make. And David, he knows both God and war. And he knew that God, even in his anger, is, is far more merciful than, than men let loose in the ravages of war. And so David, he submits himself to God. And so we're going to pick up in verse 13. It says, David said to Gad, I'm in deep distress. Let me fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is very great. But do not let me fall into human hands. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel, and 70,000 men of Israel fell dead. And so when you see things like that, we have to understand that God, God takes sin seriously. God always deals with sin. If not immediately, it will be dealt with later. And so the, the frightening thing is when you see the 70,000 there, that, that's just day one of the plague. Like there's, there's still two more days to go. So we'll keep going in verse 15. It says, God sent an angel to destroy Jerusalem. But as the angel was doing so, the Lord sawed and relented concerning the disaster and said to the angel who was destroying the people, Enough, withdraw your hand. The angel of the Lord was then standing at the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. Verse 18. Then the angel of the Lord ordered Gad to tell David to go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. So David went up in obedience to the word that God had, Gad had spoken in the name of the Lord. We'll jump down to verse 22. 
David said to him, let me have the site, he's saying this to Arana, of your threshing floor so I can build an altar to the Lord that the plague on the people may be stopped. Sell it to me at the full price. Arana said to David, take it. Let my Lord the king do whatever pleases him. Look, I will give the oxen for the burnt offerings, the threshing sledges for the wood and the wheat for the grain offering. I will give all this. But King David replied to Arana, no, I insist on paying the full price. I will not take for the Lord what is yours or sacrifice a burnt offering that costs me nothing. So David paid Arana 600 shekels of gold for the site. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. He called on the Lord and the Lord answered him with fire from heaven on the altar of burnt offering. Then the Lord spoke to the angel and he put his sword back into its sheath. At that time when David saw that the Lord had answered him on the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite, he offered sacrifices there. And so God hits the pause button on the plague out of mercy and he instructs David what to do and where to do it. And David is to go to a piece of property that belongs to a man named Arana. He's going to build an altar on that site and he's to offer sacrifices and the plague would end. Now Arana hears why David is there and he's like, okay, I will give you the site. I will give you the wood you need for the offering. I will give you my animals um, to, to make the sacrifice. You can have it all, but David, he, he says, no, I'm going to pay for it. And he does pay big money for the site. And so David, he, he builds the altar. He, he makes the sacrifices there and the plague stops. And so this narrative, it teaches us a number of things. One, that God takes sin seriously and he does punish it. But also God is merciful. God is far more merciful than we deserve. But the third thing is that sin requires death or sacrifice. And, and sacrifice was a major part of Israel's worship of God. Now, now God is the one who told David to build this altar on Arana's property. And David he could have had that property free of charge, all the things that he needs to make the sacrifice if he wants, because Arana's offering it to him. If, even if Arana didn't offer it to him, David as king could simply walk up and say, you know what, uh, issuing a royal order, I'm going to take your land. It is, it is mine now. But, but David doesn't do either of those things. Look at verse 24 again. He says, I insist on paying the full price. I will not take for the Lord what is yours or sacrifice a burnt offering that costs me nothing. And this, this teaches us something important. This teaches us um, two wrong ways you can give or offer things to God. The first is taking something that belongs to someone else to give it to God. And the other one is offering something to God that costs us nothing. Now, think of it this way. Imagine on my way out today, I see the offering box, and I'm like, hey, I want to put something in there. And so I'm going, I need to put something in there. And so I, I go over to some woman's purse, and I just reach my hand in there, and I pull out her wallet, or I slip my hand in some man's back pocket, pull out his wallet, and after I've recovered from the slap or the punch that I get, I, I take, open up their wallet, I pull out all the money in there, and it's big bucks, and I, I just jam it into the offering box. And I go, man, I have offered some good stuff to God. Do, do I actually get to say that? No. It's, it's the other person's offering, really. And it wasn't a willing one, but it was offered. It wasn't my offering or my sacrifice. 
And say, David, he knows that if he accepts Arana's offering, it's going to be Arana's sacrifice. It's not going to be David's. And he's, he knows that you don't call something your offering or your sacrifice if it costs you nothing. And if, if you look up sacrifice in the dictionary, you're going to find something like this. An act belonging to worship in which an offering is made to God of some material object belonging to the offerer. And so sacrifice is a part of worship. Um, now, you've never come here on a Sunday morning and seen one of the leaders up here at an altar offering an animal sacrifice to God with the fire and everything. And I mean, maybe, I don't know what happens when I'm on vacation or something like that. Maybe Greg goes completely off the rails or something. But, but we don't do that because of what Christ has done for us. Now, Hebrews chapter 10, it, it, it talks about this. It says, um, under the Mosaic sacrificial system, the blood of goats and bulls sacrificed, they were simply a preview of what was to come. They didn't take away the sin, but they simply reminded the people of their sin year after year. And so we're going to jump to Hebrews 10, starting at verse 10. It says, by the will of God, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Down to verse 18. And when these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. And so because of what Christ has done on the cross, our sin has been dealt with. He, we no longer sacrifice for sin. And I think as Christians, we, we take that for granted. We, we grow so accustomed to that that we don't realize how privileged we are not to have our sin hanging over our heads all the time. And so Christ's sacrifice, it, it enables us to worship God freely and forever. Now, talking about worship, this isn't really part of the message, but you hear that banging going on downstairs? Um, just so you know, that's, that's our kids worshiping right now. Um, it's, it's not disruptive music or anything like that. That's our kids worshiping God right now. I just wanted to make that point because I know some people have been like, where's that? Is somebody out in the parking lot blasting music? No, that's our kids worshiping, which is pretty cool. But, but our worship, um, it still requires a sacrifice to be made. It, it did. And Jesus was that sacrifice. Our salvation though freely given, came at a high cost to God. God made the ultimate sacrifice when he as a father gave his son so that we could be reconciled to him. And so we owe him everything. This is why we worship God. Now, I'm breaking out all the, the definitions today, but the word worship in the English, it comes from the word worthship. And, and it expresses the worthiness of the individual receiving the special honor. And so as disciples, the goal of our worship is to glorify God for who he is, what he has done, what he is doing, and what he promises to do. And so one of the ways we worship God is to offer sacrifices and offerings to him. Now, you might be going, well, I thought like Hebrews 10, we just, we just said we're done with sacrifice because of Christ's sacrifice. And I need you to hear me on this clearly. Christ's death was the final sacrifice for sin, but sacrifice is still a part of worship. 
I'll say it again. Christ's death was the final sacrifice for sin, but sacrifice is still a part of worship. Christ's sacrifice does not mean we no longer sacrifice for the glory of God. And so we sacrifice not for the forgiveness of sin, but out of the appreciation of what God has done for us. And this is why Paul says we are living sacrifices, that our lives are worship to God. Now, now if you've ever looked through the Old Testament and you see the sacrificial system, you see that God says this is what can and what cannot be given to me as a sacrifice. It, it's prescribed. And so an Israelite could never like get a fish and just throw it on the altar and go, hey God, here's my offering. God would not accept that. Why? Because the Israelite had put no labor or investment in producing the fish. They hadn't um, fed, um, taken care of, really done anything. They threw a net in the water. They caught a fish. It's the same with wild animals. God would not accept wild animals as a sacrifice because no human labor or investment. No, God said, I freely accept lambs, goats, pigeons, bulls, and oxen, these domesticated animals. But, but it had to be an animal without wound or defect. God also accepted produce from the fields, wine, oil, grain, dough, cakes. But God would not accept an offering that was of no value to the offer. And those who offered proper sacrifices, they had to work. They had to work in order to be able to make that offering or sacrifice to God. The offering or sacrifice costed something. And sacrificial giving was, was a huge part of Israel's worship. And so what is sacrificed for God is an expression of his worthiness. And so be honest with yourself. I mean, when it comes to making offerings and sacrifices for God, how do you measure against what, what David said in verse 24? What does what you offer in time, energy, and money say about God's worth in your life? Does what you offer God actually cost anything? And sacrifice, it has a cost. We don't call something an offering or a sacrifice if it doesn't cost us anything. Now, before we keep going, I want to say a couple of things. We don't ask you to do anything that we here as leaders don't do ourselves. Um, so the pastors and elders here are committed to the tithe. We all are committed to giving 10% or more of our income back to God, directly to God. Um, we're not dividing that up. That goes directly to God. So we don't ask people to do something we don't do ourselves. Also know this. Um, we don't know how much each individual person gives. Pastors and elders don't know that. That's between you, um, God, and the, the treasurer, because they deal with the tax stuff. But, but as, as pastors and elders, we know how the church is doing overall financially, but we don't know how each person gives. And we don't really want to know that, because it can be a temptation to show favoritism. And we don't want that. I also want to say we understand that there are seasons in life where finances are tight, where the biblical precedent of the tithe, the 10%, isn't always possible due to sickness, lack of work, whatever it is. And God is a gracious, a merciful, and an understanding God, and so we try and practice that ourselves. And so um, we're not legalistic about this. Now, I know that when we start talking about money in the church, there's a lot of people who are like, why did I come today of all days? If you're a guest, please understand, we don't talk about money a lot. Um, we don't expect you to give. 
We don't ask you to give if you're just checking things out. But please know the primary reason we're talking about money, it's, it's not to build up the church bank account either. We talk about money because it's a heart issue. It's a heart issue. Jesus talked a lot about money because it was a heart issue. God doesn't need your money, but God wants your heart. And if you read scripture, you will see that God sees this direct correlation between how we spend our money and the affections of our heart. And I'll show you where. Matthew chapter 6, verse 20 and 21 and 24. In there, Jesus says, Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break and steal. And this is the verse. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And so how we spend our money is a picture of our affections. Show me somebody's bank account. I can show you probably what they value in their life. And think about it. If you really want something, you will sacrifice to get it. Want a new car? Put your kids into some ridiculously expensive sport. Um, a second property, a dream vacation, a new computer, new sneakers, putting your kid through university, you will sacrifice for that. You will spend less elsewhere or you will work harder to get it. We might cut back on eating out. We won't drink coffee um, that we buy every day. We'll make it at home. We'll, we'll quit spending so much on entertainment or clothing in order to get what we want. And here's the thing. We sacrifice. We sacrifice for what we count as worthy. And I think it should be hard for us as Christians to go, I love God. I love God and I really want what God wants, but then not be willing. And that's, that's the important thing not be willing to give. Because those two things, they're in opposition. They, they don't jive. And God's, God's grace is free. But there is a cost to making disciples. And God, he, he has provided everything the church needs to do its mission, to carry it out. He, he has all the, all the finances, all the, the gifts, the abilities, they're, they're here. But the question is, will we as disciples loosen our grip on those things God has provided in order that the mission can succeed? If we think it's important that people experience God's grace, love, mercy, forgiveness, the community of his people, we need to back that up with, again, our, our gifts, our abilities, our finances, Money is primarily a heart issue. Now, Jesus says in Luke 16, 10, if you are faithful in little things, you will be faithful in larger ones. But if you are dishonest in little things, you won't be honest with greater responsibilities. And, and God is not looking at the amount of money in your offering as much as he is looking at the amount of your heart in it. And so do we declare that God is worthy in our finances? Just be honest with yourself. And I know when we talk 10%, we're going, that's a lot of money. I could do a lot of things with 10%. I get that. I've thought that. I understand the temptation to keep up with people in our culture. I, I, I feel that. But I love what C.S. Lewis says here, because I think he gets to the heart of it. He says, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. 
In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc. is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them. And he's, he's saying, we're going to look at things and go, man, that would be nice to have. A nicer car, a second property, a, a nice vacation, eating out more, a new computer, nicer clothes. But he's saying, although we look at those things and want them, we, we decide that God is more worthy of our devotion and our affection than those things. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong in having nice things. But the question is, are we making them a priority? over God. And God is not discreet. He says, I am to be number one. Now imagine you have um, friends or family, you haven't seen them for a while, coming into town, and they're going to be there at mealtime. And so they show up, and they're like, oh, I'm kind of hungry. And, and you go, I think there's half a sandwich left in the fridge, and there's like some three-day-old pizza left in there. Um, you know, go to the fridge, Help yourself to whatever you find. I'm sure there's something left in there. Like You don't do that to, to good friends or family. You, you give them your best. You cook them a nice meal. You, you try at least, and if you're like, no, I risk food poisoning and killing them with my cooking, you take them out for a, a nice meal. You take them to a restaurant. You don't give people you care about leftovers. And so ask, are you giving God your best or your leftovers. And we, we talk about money because we're fighting for the affections of your heart. And I get it. There's going to be some here who, on their way out, won't say anything to me. They might sneer a little. They probably won't like this message. I'm not going to be that offended because I don't really ever expect when we talk about money to be like, yay, money, he's asking. Like, I don't expect that. But I want you to be honest with yourself. If you're feeling resistance to this, to, to giving to God, it's most likely not coming from your head. It's probably coming from your heart. There's something else you want more. Now, God calls us to love him with everything we have. And to what point? In Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, Jesus calls us to be faithful to him to the point of death. And he is worthy of that because if, if we understand the gospel, there is no life beyond this life without Christ. And so he's worthy of that sacrifice. But I have to ask this question. If we're not willing to sacrifice for God in the normal, everyday things of life, should we really expect to sacrifice something greater should the demand ever arise? Christ said it's when we're faithful in the little things that we can expect to be faithful in the bigger things. If we're not faithful in the little things, I don't think it's right for us to expect to be faithful in the bigger things. We sacrifice for what we believe is worthy. And we want Christ to be your greatest love. And Christ said in Matthew chapter 6, 21, your, your, your heart will be where your treasure is. And he's saying you can direct the affections of your heart by putting your treasure into the right things. I just want to say for those who, who do give, who sacrificially, regularly, faithfully, thank you. Um, I, again, I don't know who gives how much, but I do know this is not possible without that type of giving. 
We don't receive help from the government. We don't have a denomination that um, gives us money. What you see, this is all from people who call HCC home. And so I say thank you because through your giving and the ministry of this church, 14 people have given their life to Christ just in the last 12 months. Uh, One of them was yesterday. And it's not just about people giving their life to Christ. It's also disciples being matured, lives being changed. And, And lives are being changed around the world through the missions we support. You won't be aware of it on this side of eternity. But thank you, because I think when we arrive in heaven, we're going to understand how our, our, our work for the kingdom, how our sacrifices have made these ripples, these effects. And we're not going to get to heaven and go, man, I'm, I'm so glad I sacrificed so I could have those nice sneakers and that outfit because I looked fly. Man, I looked good. <laughs> we're not going to be like, man, I'm glad I drank Starbucks and ate lunch out every day because that was a fulfilling life. Man, it was great. You're, you're not going to be in heaven going, man, I'm, I'm so glad I drove this car that was, it was high-end and it had some nice features, but um, it, was, it was awesome. What a great life. Now, like, and it, those are the things that, that decay, that rust, that won't be there. In heaven, we're surrounded by the things that count the most, the things that God thinks are good, his glory and people. And so what we sacrifice for it reveals the commitment of our heart. 